This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Your view on a secondary doctrine can have a corrosive effect on your profession of a primary doctrine. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, and today I'm going to just be having a conversation with my friend and co-host, Dr. James Dulza. And what we wanted to talk about today, what we thought might be an interesting conversation, and it's a conversation that we've engaged in ourselves off the air a couple of times, is the issue of primary issues and secondary issues, and how to distinguish between those, and then what role each of those plays in making certain choices that we have to make in terms of associations, both in church and in other kinds of parachurch organizations. Both James and I serve at a parachurch organization at a university that is conservative and evangelical, and yet there are a broad range of denominations represented. The churches that we go to are in some sense narrower than where we teach. And so I think this brings up some interesting issues. So primary and secondary issues. James, I want to first ask you kind of about your own background, and I'll I'll share a little bit about mine too. In the context in which you grew up, looking back, were there issues that now in retrospect seem like secondary issues that were made into primary issues uh, in such a way that it was sort of we alone have, have the truth because of our view on whatever secondary issue? I think to some extent, at least as I can recall it, I was mercifully spared of that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so that I didn't thankfully grow up in a tradition that sort of identified itself by all the people that it was against. Right. But nevertheless, there was an emphasis on doctrine where you could clearly tell just through the teaching of the church that certain things were of utmost importance and other ones, though considered important, were not of the same degree. I don't know as a young person how yeah, much I, yeah, was really, yeah. no. I, I was really picking up on that. But I think some people do have church experiences where something that is certainly of a secondary or even a tertiary order is so definitive. And I think the temptation is this. We do want to sort of brand ourselves and we want to identify ourselves in our uniqueness and a tendency. I think of this even in our confessional communities where we subscribe to a confession. A temptation might be to zero in on and give disproportionate emphasis to the aspect of that confession that makes it not like others right, similar to right, it. Right. I subscribe to the Second London, yeah. and you subscribe to the Westminster Confession. Right. And there might be the temptation for a particular Baptist or a Presbyterian, for instance, to so maximize that right. thing that makes us not the same and on which we have well-held disagreements, uh, to so maximize that into sort of the definitive mark that what we might end up missing is what I kind of call the Catholicity of both of those documents that we share in common. Now, how do you make those distinctions, though, when you're obviously in a church setting, you have to emphasize some of those things. I mean, some things have to be decided. You have to have a position on the Lord's Supper. You have to have a position on baptism in order to function. You have to have a position on church government. We might or might not consider those primary issues, in, depending on the context, but they're necessary issues. They're almost necessarily primary in a church context. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction. So maybe what we should do is not to be too confusing to our listeners, but maybe we should make the distinction between 
primary and secondary doctrines when it comes to the essence of the faith, yep. and primary and secondary issues when it comes to ecclesiastical organization of ourselves as particular churches right. or denominations. Right, right. No, I think that's fair. Now, so let's start with the first category of, with respect to the faith, primary and secondary issues. One of the things that I always suggest to students, because they'll ask me where certain doctrines fall in my estimation, one of the things that I say that's a helpful guide is to look at the scriptures and to try to determine what things are clearest and what things are maybe a little more obscure. The problem with that is, of course, I'm just speaking from my own vantage point. So the things that might appear clearer to me might appear more obscure to you or vice versa. The other thing, though, that sometimes I find helpful, and I'm curious to have you weigh in on both of these is um, is church history. So you can look back in the history of the church and say, well, the mainstream of Christian orthodoxy has always affirmed these things. And so I feel a high degree of confidence in saying that this is a primary issue. And then conversely, the mainstream of the church has disagreed on some of these issues. There's always been diversity within the Orthodox church on this. Therefore, I'm comfortable with that sort of diversity. Do either of those things work or how do you sort it out? That's a difficult question because in one sense, if you went that route, there could be a way in which you just sort of lazily say, I'm going to let the history of the church decide for me the right. primary and secondary. Right, right. And then there is no sort of Berean spirit where you are searching the scriptures and, yeah. and holding these distinctions because you believe them to be true and the right distinctions. Right. Nevertheless, the church is a significant voice that helps us see how others have wrestled with the same question that we're talking about and where the general consensus lies. And I think if the general consensus lies that the triunity of the one God is in fact a fundamental of primary importance such that if it were denied, one would have to be regarded as not of the faith. Right. If something like the doctrine of the resurrection, Mm -hmm. uh, which scripture clearly identifies as being uh, necessary to being of sound in the faith. So I think we can look both at scripture and at church history and find clues as to what is of primary importance. Maybe I should put the question back at you. When I think, though, of what is fundamental, and I'm thinking both in scripture and in church history, it does seem to be two things. First, the right identity of what we worship. Mm-hmm. That is to say, our doctrine of God. Yep. And secondly, a right understanding of how it is that we are reconciled to him. Yeah. The doctrine of salvation. Yeah. And I think, at least so far as I'm concerned, if we're talking about that first you know, primary, secondary consideration of primary with regard to the faith, yeah. a right identification of who God is and a right understanding of how it is that he saves us through his son and by his spirit is, I would argue, of primary significance. Right. No, I agree that those two things are of primary significance. I mean, yes, there's nothing more important than answering those two questions. I mean, the tricky part, of course, is to go back to the sort of church history test. There have been eras of church history where I think the gospel of how we are reconciled with God was fuzzy, was impeded by certain other traditions or accretions from scripture. So yeah, for sure. Those are the two most significant questions human beings have to answer. So let's like connect that primary concern and show how it kind of comes into contact with a secondary issue, like perhaps the administration or conception of a sacrament. Let's take baptism. If you 
take the view of baptismal regeneration, yeah. does this so weaken your understanding of how it is that we are reconciled to God to such a degree that, though formally speaking, you might give a good account of yourself with regard to how we are saved through Christ Jesus, if at the same time you hold a view of baptismal regeneration, can those things be reconciled, or do we as churchmen have a responsibility to draw a line? I, no, absolutely. I think that's a huge problem. I think those kinds of things can obscure what might otherwise be professed with clarity. And I think you could see that. I mean, I think that's sort of manifest throughout periods of church history. So I guess where this whole thing gets tricky is your view on a secondary doctrine right. can have a corrosive effect on your profession of a primary doctrine. That's right. And then I think in addition to that, there are some doctrines in certain eras that serve as almost stand-ins or sort of shibboleths that reveal where you fall on other things. Now, I think that we need to be really, really cautious of that. But there would be some people who might say, this isn't the position that I would hold. This isn't how I would articulate it. But they would say, if you don't hold to a certain view of the way in which God created the heavens and the earth, then therefore you don't have a high view of the Bible. And so, but I do understand the logic of that at some level, because there are some doctrines that act as stand-ins in just that kind of way. If you have this view of baptism, then almost by definition, you're obscuring the clarity of the gospel. So this is a question, and let's take the creation one as just an example. Yep. How and to what extent does this impinge corrosively or not on your understanding of God. And in particular, I'm thinking of how Scripture repeatedly, and perhaps most frequently, more than any other thing that Scripture points to, distinguishing God from what is not God, distinguishing that which we ought mm -hmm. to worship from which we ought not worship, is the creator-creature distinction. Does right. a differing view on the how or the mechanism by which God mm -hmm. creates, mm -hmm. does this so corrupt your conception of creatorhood as such as to erase or compromise that all-important distinction that Scripture points out. And how you make right. that judgment, and some will say, yes, it does. Now, right. I think you and I are on the same page with this, but I would say, not necessarily. Right. I may think that it's biblically right. incorrect, right. but with regard to how it impinges right. upon the identity of God the Creator, it may not change that identity as such, it may right. just simply give a different account of how such creation unfolds. I agree 100%. I think the way I've seen the connection drawn is not so much that this changes your view of God, so much as this reveals something about your attitude towards scripture that therefore will call into question how you're going to read scripture in general. And that, that can be a very slippery slope because I've heard people say that about all kinds of things. If you don't hold this view of this passage, if you don't hold this view of eschatology, then you don't actually take the Bible at its word. That argument gets smuggled into all kinds of arguments on secondary issues. If, if you don't have this view on the role of women, then your view of scripture is lower. And that's the hard one. Here's where I'll weigh in on that. You may disagree. I don't know. I think on some of that, I want to be careful between sort of the green flag, it's all good. And on the other side, the red flag, this is entirely horrible. Is there not room to say, raise a yellow flag and ask the question, if you take an interpretation that seems to me not to be what the Bible requires us to believe about, right. say, the how of creation, right. does that legitimately raise a question in my mind, not 
produce a conclusion, but raise a question in my mind as to how you treat the scripture, and is it unwarranted that I may probe a little bit to see that you're not, in fact, undermining the authority of the Word of God? And I think it's fair to those who are concerned by that, I want to say, I think the concern is not unwarranted. Right. I think rushing to the conclusion that necessarily this undermines the inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of the scripture, I guess I would be hesitant to race to that conclusion without further investigation. But I've heard the same thing. No, I've, I've heard it, someone say, it's the same people who get the end wrong. This is right. someone preaching against amillennialism. Right. It's the same people who get the end wrong, they get the beginning right, wrong. Right, and the right. assumption being, it's the amillennialists who are also the theistic yeah. evolutionists. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking, well, I'm an amillennialist who's not a theistic evolutionist, right, so where right, do I fit? Right, right, right. Yeah, I don't think we've solved any problems, and we've been talking for 14 well, minutes. <laughs> okay. I think part of solving the question, though, is just with regard to the issues of the faith, I do think it is important that we identify them as the doctrine of God and the doctrine of salvation, in so much as the secondary undermines those doctrines so much so that you ought not worship that God or you yeah. couldn't be saved that way. Right. If it has that effect on it, then the secondary starts butting up against the primary where it, in a certain sense, while formally it's still secondary, it has to be treated as primary because of the implications it has for yeah. the primary. Yeah. I think maybe that's what makes this whole discussion so difficult for us is because we have to take the secondary on a case-by-case basis and try to discern what, if any, impact it has on the primary. I think that's right. Well, interesting discussion. And uh, James, always good to talk with you. Likewise, thanks. And thank you for listening to this conversation. Theology on the Go and everything we do at the Alliance is supported by listeners like you. So if you'd like to donate, you can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. Thanks for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.